Good morning. Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have, what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets, the word of the Lord. What is the good life, and what does it mean to be a good person? Does that feel like an important question to any of you? I think most of us would raise our hands and say, yeah, that's, that's an important question. For instance, one of the most popular TV shows uh, in the past few years is a TV show called The Good Place. It's about four recently departed souls, Chidi Anagonye, Eleanor Shellstrop, Tahani Al-Jamil and Jason Mendoza. They all die and go to the good place. Lucky them. Actually, it's not luck because each of them was such good persons when they lived on earth that they earned their way into the good place. Now, I'm not gonna spoil what happens on the show, but one of the main things that happens is, let's just say they find out that maybe they weren't as good as they thought they were. Fortunately, one of them, Chidi, was a professor of moral philosophy when he was on earth. So they all get together to study ethics together. Sounds riveting, doesn't it? Actually, it's a really good show. But the whole thing is about one huge question. What is the good life and what does it mean to be a good person? The popularity of this show, I think, is evidence that that's still an important question for us. Now, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' answer to this question. It's a picture of the good life and what it means to be a good person. So, um, in this passage, Jesus is talking about this. But in this passage that we just read, uh, Jesus is wrapping up the main section of the sermon. And he ends with one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. Even if you're not religious or familiar with the Bible, you've heard this verse. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, what do we call that? That's right, the golden rule. Um, It's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. But here's the thing I want to focus on this morning. Notice that in the beginning, um, Jesus says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. That word so is literally therefore. In other words, Jesus is saying that everything, what we know is the golden rule, our goodness, our actions, our behavior, that all of that is completely dependent on what Jesus has just said right before this. And what was he talking about? Our relationship with God. Specifically, our prayer relationship. So what does that have to do with the good life and being a good person? 
Well, let's find out by seeing three big things in this passage. Jesus is going to show us the promise of prayer, the result of prayer, and the foundation of prayer. Okay? The promise, the result, and the foundation of prayer. So first, he shows us the promise of prayer. Now, this is not the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has talked about prayer. Back in chapter 6, he gives us the most famous prayer of all time, the Lord's Prayer. We spent several weeks looking at that. But here, Jesus comes back to the subject of prayer, but what he says here is kind of shocking because it sounds like Jesus is writing a blank check. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. In other words, Jesus is saying, whatever you want, just ask God and he will give it to you. Now, immediately this raises questions because there's all kinds of potential problems with this. First of all, um, one of the big problems is that doesn't this lead to selfishness? Just ask God for whatever you want and he's going to give it to you. And secondly, and maybe even more problematically, anyone who's ever prayed has experienced times when God has not given you what you prayed for. So this promise of Jesus potentially leads not only to us selfishly abusing our prayer privileges, but also potentially experiencing bitter disappointment in prayer. Which leads us to ask, Jesus, why would you make a promise like this when there's so many obvious problems with this? Well, the answer is in verses 9 and 10. Jesus gives us a little parable to help us understand what he's talking about. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Now, this is actually a brilliant little illustration. Think about it. Um, A stone kind of looks like a loaf of bread, and a snake kind of looks like a fish. Now, if you're a parent, there's none of you who, if your child asked you for bread or a fish, you would never give your child something that kind of looks like what they asked for, but is actually harmful. You would never trick them like that. You would never say, hey, take a a bite out of this stone or a bite out of this snake. You would never do that. Jesus is saying that our relationship with God is like the relationship of a child with a parent. And that means three things. It means access, boldness, and trust. Okay? First, it means access. Um, Maybe one of the best illustrations I've ever heard goes like this. Imagine that you're asleep in the middle of the night. Who gets to come to your bedside and wake you up? The answer is nobody except your child. The only person in the world with that kind of access is a child. Secondly, this means boldness. Here you are, and your child comes to you at your bedside at 2 o'clock in the morning, and they need something. Are they going to hem and haw about it? Are they going to beat around the bush with you? Of course not. Children just come right out with their requests. Mommy, I'm thirsty. Can I have a drink of water? Daddy, I'm scared. Can I have a hug? Children ask boldly, they ask shamelessly, and children know that you are going to give them what they really need. Why? Because thirdly, there's trust. At least in a healthy parent-child relationship, the child knows that the parent is going to give them what they need. They know they have access, they know that they can ask boldly, and they know that their parent will never trick them 
but always give them exactly what they need. Now, here's the thing, and if you're a parent, you know this happens all the time. What if your child comes to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, I'm thirsty. Can I have a swig of that tasty-looking purple stuff under the sink? What's going on there? The child thinks that they're asking for a fish, but what they're really asking for is a snake, only they don't realize it. And so, of course, you're not going to give that to your child. You will only give your child what's good for them. You will never trick your child. So if your child asks for a fish, you give them a fish. But if they ask for a snake and they don't realize that's what they're asking for, you're still going to only give them what they really need, even if it means turning down their request in that moment. Friends, Jesus is saying that's what God is like. God will never trick you. God will always give you the real thing. He will always give you what you really need, not what you think you need, because he's a good father. That is the point of this whole parable. The emphasis here is not so much on the nature of our requests as it is on the goodness of the father. That's why Jesus ends the parable by saying this, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more shows us where the real focus is? It's on experiencing the goodness of the Father. It's on experiencing the love of God as Father. So listen, is there a danger that you might sometimes abuse your prayer privileges with God? Sure. And is there a danger that sometimes you might ask for a snake that is really a uh, Uh, that you think is a fish and God might say no and you might be bitterly disappointed in prayer? Of course. Jesus is completely aware of all of those dangers, but for Jesus, by far, the greater danger is not that we might abuse prayer or that we might be disappointed in prayer, but that we would ignore prayer and thereby completely miss out on the overwhelming love and goodness of God as Father. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, just go. Just be with him. Of course you're going to get it wrong sometimes. Of course sometimes you're going to ask for a snake that you think is a fish. Don't worry about that. Just go. Just spend time with God as Father. Just spend time seeking him with access, boldness, and trust. Dear ones, the promise of prayer is that before it's anything else, it is first and foremost an experience of the overwhelming love and goodness of God as Father, not just knowing about it, experiencing it. In the same way that a three-year-old experiences a hug from a parent in the middle of the night when they're afraid. That's the promise of prayer. But that leads to the second thing we see here, which is the result of prayer. Because now we're actually in a position to come back to the golden rule and and understand what's really going on here. Jesus has just given us this incredible vision of experiencing um, the love and goodness of God as Father. Then he says, so therefore in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, like I said, we know this as the golden rule, but I don't think calling it a rule is actually the best way or most helpful way of thinking about this. Because once we understand the context and the flow of Jesus' thought here, we realize that what Jesus is doing here is he's not so much giving us a rule that says, here's what you must do in order to experience God's love. 
That's a very traditional religious approach to life, but it's not the gospel. Jesus doesn't say, do good to people, therefore God will love you. He says, God is already doing good to you, therefore do good to others. It's the exact opposite of that. That's what Jesus is saying here. Do you see this? In other words, before he ever gives us a rule to follow, Jesus gives us a relationship to enjoy. Or we could put it like this. The more you experience God's goodness, the more you express God's goodness. The more you experience God's goodness, the more you express God's goodness. The golden rule is not a rule that we must follow. It's not something that's showing us what we must do in order to experience God's goodness. It's the result of what happens in our lives when we experience the goodness and the love of God as Father. Now, here's the question. What does this look like in practice? How do we actually go about doing good to others as we would have them do good to us? Well, it means way more than we can possibly talk about this morning, but let me offer you just a couple of brief thoughts. We could put it like this. We could think about it in terms of being a creative counterculture. A creative counterculture. Here's what I mean. First, it means being creative. If we were to translate verse 12 literally, it says this, therefore, whatever you wish other people would do for you, do the same thing for them. I love that Jesus uses the word wish here. He says, whatever you wish. Jesus is inviting us to be creative. He's inviting us to be imaginative about this. I mean, are there times, you know, when people do things to you that you don't like or treat you in ways that you don't want them to treat you? Do you ever think to yourself, gosh, I wish people would do this or do that instead? For instance, imagine that you and someone else are both approaching a checkout line at the store at exactly the same moment. You're eyeballing each other. And without being glaringly obvious about it, that other person speeds up just enough to slide in there right before you. When that happens to you, do you you ever find yourself thinking, gosh, I wish they would have let me go first? Of course you do. We all do. Jesus is saying, whatever you wish others would do for you, do that for them. So as you're at the supermarket and you're there, you're eyeballing each other as you come up to that checkout lane, what if instead you gave that person a big smile, you extend your arm and you say, please, after you. If somebody did that for you, I mean, at that moment, it's like your faith in humanity would have been restored. Whatever you wish others would do for you, do that for them. Jesus is saying, be creative. Surprise people. I mean, it could be fun just to to see the look on their faces when you do it. Be creative. That's the first thing. But secondly, this means being countercultural, and here's why. Um, there, There are many other teachers Um, in history other than Jesus who have um, stated forms of the golden rule, but they've always stated it in more what we could call a negative form of the rule. In other words, the, the form that other teachers have given is like this. Whatever you wish people would not do to you, don't do that to them. It's, it's in a negative form. As far as we know, Jesus is the first and only person in history ever to have stated it in a positive form, not just do no harm, but Jesus said actively love others. Now, in our culture, we talk a lot about love and the importance of loving other people, but in our culture, we really do it more in the no harm version, right? 
We define love as permission, tolerance, freedom. We say everyone should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm other people. Now, on the one hand, that is a, um, a profoundly uh, deep affirmation of individual human dignity and, and freedom from harm and oppression. It's a wonderful thing. And by the way, um, our culture's emphasis on that is, is a direct result of the impact of Christianity in our world. Many of you know I'm very um, fascinated by how many historians and philosophers are constantly pointing this out. So for instance, Jacques Derrida, I've never quoted him here before. Well, he was a very famous French philosopher, postmodern French guy, and he was definitely not a Christian. But he said this once, he said, the cornerstone of international law is the sacredness of man as your neighbor made by God. In that sense, the concept of crime against humanity is a Christian concept, and I think there would be no such thing in the law today without the Christian heritage. In other words, our culture affirms individual human dignity because Jesus affirms individual human dignity. But here's the problem. In, um, in our world, we live in a modern scientific world, which says there is no God, and therefore there is no inherent meaning and purpose in humanity. Now here's what that means. What's a screwdriver for? Driving screws. What's a paper knife for? Cutting paper. That's what those things are for. Screwdrivers and paper knives have inherent meaning and purpose. Modern science says human beings have no inherent meaning and purpose. Human beings aren't for anything. And as a result, our culture says we must create our own meaning and purpose. And even if you believe in God, that idea is like second nature in our culture. In fact, it's sacred in our culture. No one can tell you what you're for. Only you can tell you what you're for. So here's the question. How can we say what's good or bad for people if we can't say what people are for? I mean, think about it. You can use a knife to drive a screw, and it'll kind of work, but it'll also ruin the knife, right? Why? Because that's not what knives are for. We can say what's good or bad for knives because we know what knives are for. When we say everyone should be free as long as they don't harm others, the only reason we can say that, the only way that makes sense is if we already have some idea of what human beings are for, which is the very thing our culture denies. Friends, here's the point. Doing creative good in our society is also going to be countercultural. Because it means that, that we can only do that unless we have a real, universal, shared human nature that says, this is what human beings are for. That's the only way that we can do that. So in other words, in our culture, you can say, well, this is right for me. And, and if you say this is right for me, then it's right for you. Nobody gets to contradict you. In other words, in our culture, you can say, this is a fish. And nobody gets to say, no, actually, that's a snake. Be doing creative good in our culture is going to be countercultural because sometimes it's going to mean saying, no, actually, that is a snake. That's not good for you. 
Now, we don't have time this morning to go into all of the details of what this would look like in society. And if you're curious about this, then please keep coming back because we talk about this a lot here at Central West End Church. But friends, all of this leads to our last point. We've seen the purpose of prayer, which, I mean the promise of prayer, which is God, Jesus is promising us an experience of God's goodness as Father. We've seen the result of prayer. The more you experience God's goodness, the more you express God's goodness. But lastly, we need to look at the foundation of prayer because here's the question. How do we actually experience God's goodness like this? Jesus has just invited us to have this experience of access, boldness, and trust in in the goodness and, and love of God as Father. But how do we actually experience that? Here's how. I don't know if if you noticed this when Nicole was reading this morning's scripture because it goes by pretty fast. Jesus makes a, a pretty quick little offhand statement. He says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus says, you're evil. And then he just keeps moving right along forward with the rest of his statement while we're back here saying, wait, what? In our culture, evil, and when we think about evil, we're thinking about Hitler. We're thinking about serial killers. In our culture, evil is a very extreme category, and maybe a few people fit into that, but not us. Now, here's the thing. I mean, think about this. Jesus, here he is, and and even people who don't identify as Christians will oftentimes very gladly and loudly say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher. Okay, wonderful. But, but here's Jesus, this wonderful moral teacher, telling us that we're evil, which totally offends us. So either we have to get rid of this, I, this quaint little idea that we have about Jesus being a great moral teacher, or we have to reframe the way we think about evil. Evil does not mean that every single one of us is as bad as we could possibly be. We're not all serial killers. Evil means that in every single one of us, there is something that resists God, something that rebels against God. There's something in every single one of us that that says, God, I know you call this a snake, but I call this a fish, and we want it precious. Yes, we do. And if you're not going to give it to me, then I'm going to go out and I'm going to get it for myself. Now, here's what's so amazing about this passage. Yes, Jesus is looking straight at your evil. He sees it. He doesn't ignore it. And he doesn't want us to ignore it either. Jesus names our evil, but then he keeps driving forward to focus us on what he really wants us to see, which is the goodness of God as Father, which is the how much more of the Father's love for us. That's what Jesus wants us to see here. Now, if you were with us last week, remember we said there's a difference between that which describes you and that which defines you? Jesus is saying, yes, evil may describe you, but if you're loved by the Father, that's what defines you. In other words, Jesus names our evil without naming us evil. He names us beloved of the Father. That's what Jesus is doing here. Now, listen, friends, I don't know each one of you personally. And even those of you that I do know, I I don't know the depths of all the things that you may struggle with in life. 
But I do know this about you. Every single one of us longs to be known and loved. We long to be accepted and we long to be treasured by others. We long to be gazed upon with love and delight. But I also know this about each and every single one of us, that, that no matter how confident or powerful or smart or successful or put together or moral or ethical or woke, we may portray ourselves to the world around us. In every single one of us, there is something very deep in our hearts that doubts that we are worthy of that kind of love and belonging. And that doubt names us. The fear and the shame names us. You know, shame experts will tell you that when we experience shame, that, that, that we want to hide our face. We long to be gazed upon with love and delight and to be welcomed into love and belonging, but when we experience shame, we hide. When I was living in New York City, I remember one day I went down in the subway and there was a homeless person defecating there because they had no place else to go. But the thing that really got to me was they had covered their head with their coat because they were so ashamed. Shame makes us hide. The, the overwhelming truth that Jesus is showing here is this. How can you come to God asking, seeking, and knocking? How can you come to a father like this with access and boldness and trust? The only way, the only reason is because this is a God who has already come seeking you. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost, to seek and to save the ashamed the fearful, the doubting, the, the burdened, the broken, and yes, the evil. He came to seek and save the lost. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was seeking you. Because Jesus is the only person throughout the history of the world that always had the face of the Father shining and gazing upon him in love and delight. But, but on the cross, Jesus lost the face of the Father so that we could, um, so that we could have it forever. On the cross, Jesus cried out to the Father, but he got a snake so that we could get a fish. Jesus, Jesus experienced the conflagration of all God's justice on evil so that we could experience the warmth and the love of God the Father in our lives so that God could name our evil without naming us evil, but rather name us beloved of the Father. Friends, if you're exploring faith or um, what it means to follow Jesus this morning, do you long for a name and a love like this? There is no other place in this world on offer where you can get something like this. The, the, Jesus is the only place you can get something like this. If you're experiencing a, a sense of a longing or a desire for a name like this, for a love like this, if you're experiencing a longing or a desire to seek God, it's because God is already seeking you. The only reason you're experiencing this longing is because God is already seeking you out. Ask, seek, knock, invite him in. And if you are a Christian, do you realize you have been given a foundation of love and belonging that is unlike anything else in this world? So just go, just be with him, just spend time with the Father in prayer. That's really all he wants to do is spend time with you and love you, pour out his grace and his affection on you. 
Of course he wants to be at work in this world, and we pray to seek his mighty arm outstretched on behalf of this world. But first and foremost, prayer is an experience of the love and goodness of God as Father. Yes, we're going to get it wrong sometimes. Yes, sometimes we're going to ask for snakes that we think are fish, but just go to him. Spend time with him, seeking him um, in access and boldness and in trust. And the more we do, let him transform us more and more into a creative counterculture of good in this world. The more we experience God's goodness, the more we express God's goodness. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we thank you this morning that, um, that you have given us the right and the privilege and the honor and the joy of calling you Abba. Father, we praise you this morning that you name our evil without naming us evil. Rather, you name us beloved of the Father because of Jesus' work for us on the cross. And so this morning, we pray that you would help us more and more to experience your love, to experience your goodness. Father, we long to know more of you, to experience more of you, to, to feel that hug and to know the face of God shining upon us. Father, as we experience your love, help us to seek you, help us to ask and to knock. And I pray that you would more and more transform us into a community of creative, countercultural goodness to the world around us. Lord, um, that many others may come to see and know and love this Jesus, this Savior, this one who has come and sought us on the cross. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.